Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, and this is a podcast about Icelandic museums and museum culture. Every museum person probably has gone through this debate. Are we there for the visitor or are we there for the collection? By the time I started recording for this podcast in late August, winter was already on its way to Iceland. So I decided to take advantage of the last few days of summer and do my first interview at the Aupar Open Air Museum in Reykjavik. The day was sunny and warm by Icelandic standards, so I happily spent a few hours wandering around the grounds and exploring exhibits housed in beautiful old Icelandic buildings. The Open Air Museum offers daily tours in English, and it just so happened that I was the only person on tour that day. I jumped at this opportunity to start my exploration of Icelandic museum culture, and I asked my guide Sig to personalize my tour with details on museum operations and aspirations. After a great tour, we sat down in a fashionably appointed 19th century parlor to talk more in depth about the museum and his work there. Ég heiti Sigurlaugur Ingólfsson og ég er verkefnastjóri fyrir Árbæðasafn. So my name is Sigurlaugur, they call me SIG in the States. I'm the project manager for the Open Air Museum. We're part of a bigger organization called the City Museum or Reykjavik City Museum. I've been working for this museum and its predecessor since 2004. I started here as a summer employee, as a student. Three summers, my last summer, I was the senior guide. And I was asked to stay for a week longer after we closed in September 2006. And I've been here for 11 years since. So in the 1950s, people realized that the old society was gradually disappearing. Iceland was very backward and very conservative and uh, very poor. So we see gradual changes from the late 19th century into the 20th century and by uh, the second world war it's almost like an industrial revolution comes to iceland for the first time and we modernize very very quickly we move out of the old sod houses into into the modern age and people realize that you know maybe we should preserve some of this heritage before it's completely gone so here in reykjavik there were big plans to redevelop the town and, and to tear down the old timber houses they were often referred to as old rotten Danish planks. So the idea was to rebuild the town centre, but at least they had the foresight. They wanted to preserve building. So the big question was, where do we put this open-air museum? And of course, it's, it's very much in the Scandinavian tradition. This is a Scandinavian concept. This location was finally chosen, probably because this land was owned by the city as early as 1906. It was a farm till 1948, so there was an old traditional farmhouse here. So gradually from the 1960s onwards, we've moved about 25 plus buildings to the site. Very haphazardly, I have to say. It, it, it was not like they would go and pinpoint buildings of historical significance and say, we want to move this, we want to move that. 
It was more the question of they're making road construction work, this house has to go. They want a parking lot here, this house has to go. So a lot of these houses came rather piecemeal to the museum. But perhaps to the visitor, they don't really realize that because luckily, as it turns out, we do have uh, examples of different buildings in different periods. They form a rather cohesive setting, I suppose. So 1957 is the start date. So it's this year, 2017. It's our 60th anniversary. Merging several independently run museums into one large organization is no small challenge. I asked Sig to talk about how things have changed, for better and worse, since the Open Air Museum was combined with a few other small museums to become the Reykjavik City Museum. Prior to the merger, even before there was an idea, we went to Norway. And there they have, they have been going through the same process, taking smaller museums, grouping them together. Some successfully, some not so successfully. So when it came to the merger, we uh, knew of the um, Norwegian experience. So of course the fabric changed a great deal. We became a bigger organization, but also more complicated in many respects. Previously, and this is probably the biggest change, previously the old museum, it was kind of one for all, all for one type of thing. So if there was a big event or something special, and everyone would chip in. Following the merger, we had departments set up with very specific roles and duties. And all of a sudden, people began to focus more on their speciality, maybe. It was more difficult to kind of get everyone involved as had been previously mm. when we were a smaller organization. And maybe that's just the part we became just bigger. And people just felt that they belonged to a department rather than the whole complex. So there certainly were challenges. My biggest difference was when we were here at the Open Air Museum, when that was the core of the old Reykjavik City Museum, there were more offers, for instance, doing the summer events program. Following the merger, there's an event manager who now does events across the museum, and it's just me and her organizing the summer events, for instance, instead of maybe previously it would be the department, the old departmental head people from other departments chipping in. So we, we were maybe five who would organize summer events. Following the merger, there's less people doing, for instance, that job. How many people were working just at the, um, the Open Air Museum before the merger? So the old, old city museum was the Open Air Museum and the settlement exhibition. These two then grouped with other three institutions to form the new museum. I think we were about 17 in the old one. Part of the city museum then, as as now, was dealing with archaeological work, collection and, and house surveys and things like that, which we were servicing the city, not directly involved maybe in the running of the museum as such. So following the merger, I think we're about 35 now. So the new institution is probably double the size of the old one. And of course, it's more spread out, so people are all over the place. If you're American or British, you probably know someone who's visited Iceland recently. That's because Iceland is experiencing a massive tourist boom. They went from having less than 500,000 visitors in 2010 to an expected 2 million in 2017. The last two or three years in particular have seen rapidly increasing rates of tourism and a longer tourism season. 
I was curious how these changes were affecting the open air museum and how museum staff balance the needs of tourists with the very different needs of a small local Icelandic audience. So ironically here at the Open Air Museum, we haven't seen the surge of tourists as we probably would like, to be <laughs> honest. Uh, if you compare us to the uh, settlement exhibition, the settlement exhibition is located downtown. It's an archaeological site. It's in situ where they found Viking Age ruins, everything Viking. It's a big attraction. It's coming to a point where they just have to try to stem the, the, the flood of tourists. It's so crowded in the summer. People are feeling a negative experience and we're feeling that, sensing that feeling in through our service. Here, it's a bigger site, <laughs> not a big problem. For some reason, we, we don't seem to attract that many tourists as we would like. Of course, there is an increase, but certainly we would want more, especially as uh, tourism in the winter has become a big thing. And this is something we're uh, experimenting this year is to extend the opening hours instead of the usual three months, June, July, August, 10 to 5. So we're hoping that we will get some share of these tourists. The locals are our biggest group, I would say, still. I think the last time I checked, it was probably around 60-40% for the locals. And the locals come on the big events days, June 17th, Independence Day, Christmas program days. We have a puppet show which has been going on since I was a toddler. It, it's a, that was the biggest day of the summer. We had 2,300 people turn up for a puppet, for show. A puppet show. Okay, uh, now I have to come <laughs> to the next one. Locals come for these huge events, and, and so they still are the big mass. Tourists come more like in general, just every day, rain, shine. I mean, they have to do something, I suppose. The locals come and it's sunshine and nice weather. <laughs> so we don't aim specifically at tourists. Our programs are very open in that sense. We have usually craftspeople or events days, and they seem to work both ways. We try to, I mean, all our people have to speak English. That, that's not a barrier. I mean, some of the things we're doing probably seem odd to the foreigners, but then again, that's probably what they're after. They want something Icelandic, I guess. What might change this now is the fact that the hop-on, hop-off bus, sightseeing bus of Reykjavik, is extending its route here. I think that might actually lure more people up here. Because ironically, Reykjavik is a very small town, as you probably experienced coming from the States. But if you look at a map, sometimes we're, we're not even on a city map. Because uh, we're, we're in a suburb. And I think people, people sometimes think, oh, this is far away. Even though I think it took me... 20 minutes by bus yeah. to get here this morning from yeah. a pretty central location. Yeah. When I go to Open Air Museum in Britain or in Europe or wherever, I have to take a bus for an hour sometimes to a tiny little village in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so yes, I mean, the location isn't as bad as people think, but sometimes I think do pe uh, people look at a map and, and think the distances are greater than they actually are. Uh, a lot of museums, rural museums, are run by maybe one person. There's, a, there's only a director. And there's a great pressure on the director to do more touristy things. This person maybe wants to uh, focus more on the locals or to catalog the collection, you know, do more museum-related stuff. But the community or the municipality is more like, mm, no, let's do more touristy things. Let's try to attract more tourists. I can understand their point of view. I can understand the director's point of view. 
I guess there's, there's, there's some middle ground there. But this is a, a struggle, I see. Every museum person probably has gone through this debate. Are we there for the visitor or are we there for the collection? Back in the States, whenever I told anyone, museum professional or layperson, that I was moving to Iceland to explore museum culture, nine out of ten times the reaction was, don't they have a penis museum? I thought it was a bit unfair that Iceland's museum reputation abroad was one of exclusively Vikings and genitalia. I assumed Sig would share my frustration that other subjects and centuries weren't getting their proper respect from tourists, but he turned out to be a bit more open-minded than me about the place and value of sensational museums. I mean, that's how museums came about. First, museums are more like curiosities. Mm -hmm. You go to a museum to see a mummy. For people in the 18th century, that was probably the big draw. So probably, I guess that still lingers on, so, oh, we have to go and see the penis museum. <laughs> of course, our history goes back, and we've always painted the Viking Age as this golden age. And, I mean, honestly, then came many centuries of just famines and hardship and volcanic eruptions and things like that. So things didn't really begin to pick up until in the late 19th century. And that's the story we're telling here, for instance. But I get a lot of people who, who come, mainly from Europe, and they ask me, oh, how old are the houses? Oh, they're 18, 50s, 60s, and so on. Oh, I live in a house from 1620. So because to them, it's like a very young story we're telling, given that we've been here on the island for a thousand years. But it's true, the Vikings are the big draw, understandably, you know, they're very fascinating. They're, I had a Spanish girl yesterday who didn't speak a word of English and she would do this translation through her phone. The only word I, I would spot which was Vigingos. <laughs> she was looking for the Viking house. There's no Viking house here. I'm <laughs> you have to go somewhere else. I mean, that's understandable. Yeah. I mean, you go to a country like Egypt and you want to see the pyramids, obviously. And probably you have no idea what happened after the pyramids. And you go to Greece and you, you see the Pantheon and all these great places. So understandably, I think Viking is the big attraction. And of course, we take full advantage. Do you find that people are kind of resistant to talking about a history that is a bit darker and a bit more bleak? Me and my colleague, we wrote an article for a Serbian museum book. The theme of the article was our impression of the museum, our museum. His conclusion was this museum is too nice. We're painting a too nice of a picture. Whereas the dirt and the grime, you look at photographs, the roads are just dirt and, and everything is very dirty and it's very grimy. And so to a point, I mean, I think we always probably paint a rather rosier picture of the past. We're trying to touch on these things gradually, I guess, by putting up an exhibition in one of the houses set in the 1950s. It's a poor family. The reason being that a lot of these houses we have on the museum were social houses in the final days. The city would buy them for absolutely nothing. No one wanted to live there. They would be handed over to poor families to live in. That's part of the social history. We are very aware that we need to paint a balanced picture. Regarding the locals, I think it's, it's, I, I see a huge generation gap forming. My parents' generation were brought up in the rural conditions. My mother grew up on a farm. In many respects, life on that farm hadn't changed so much from the Viking Age. I mean, they were still mowing hay with a scythe and they were still using horses for transport. 
the first machine came in 1954. She lived through this in many respects. I see people maybe my age, uh, there's a complete rift. They have very little sense for the, for the history. They don't have the same, obviously not the same experience as their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. So I think that's maybe our aim now is to try to give them a balanced picture of the past. So I know I know the question people are going to ask me when I'm talking about Icelandic museums is where do you get your money? We are fortunate to be funded entirely by the city. That's the case for most museums in Iceland. They're funded by either the municipalities or by the state. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's maybe not so such a good thing. If we take the Natural History Museum, have you ever heard of the Icelandic Natural History Museum? It does exist. They don't have any place to showcase the artifacts. They're always moving around. I have no clue where they are. So they've been waiting for funding from the state for probably 60, 70 years. And I mean, they were established a long time ago, uh, but they never got a museum. And of course, we also have to generate income through the sales of admission, uh, renting out our church and, and things like that. Sometimes funding is just as difficult as in the States. You have wise politicians who make wise decisions or maybe the opposite sometimes. <laughs> I would say overall, I mean, we've not experienced uh, much starving of funding. Of course, there's a huge economic collapse in 2009. It's a long time ago now. There was a lot of cuts, understandably. I mean, the society went bankrupt. The city decided to save jobs, so we were guaranteed to keep our job. But all projects, working on the houses, maintenance, everything was cut. Overall, I think we were pretty well taken care of. Funding by the government, does that account for why there are so many museums in Iceland? It is crazy, yeah. to be honest. And whenever a new museum pops up, I sometimes think, hmm... Is this a wise decision? Because it, that probably means they have to take money somewhere else. And of course, for us, so the, the, the open air museum used to be like a single child and very pampered by the city for a long time. Then came Little Brother, the settlement exhibition in 2006. It was the most expensive exhibition to be put up in Iceland. It is still in my honest opinion, probably one of the best. One of the best I've seen in many other countries even. Of course, that meant we had to share with Little Brother a lot of the funding. I mean, there was a little bit of, um, what's the word for it? You know, when you envy your Little Brother. Jealousy. Jealousy, that's right, yes. There was a bit of jealousy among us who came from the opening machine towards the Saturn exhibition for all the nice things they got, the nice little coffee machine, and they got this and they got that, and so on. Of course, it's a bit of a battle for funding. And another thing we noticed, in the 90s, in the early 2000s, municipalities, small municipalities, saw that you know to, to, to attract tourists to their little town, to their little fishing port, where there's absolutely nothing to see but ships or houses, they need an attraction. And every little town, every little village starts a project uh, an exhibition or a museum of some sort. And they have tried to highlight the uh, uniqueness in their community. So, for instance, there's a little town up on the west northwest coast called Bildudalur. There's a, there's a big legend of sea monsters 
So they create the sea monster exhibition. It's actually a very nice exhibition. In another area, it's the seal exhibition, or the salmon exhibition, or the polar bear exhibition, or the white fox exhibition, and so on and so on and so on. And of course, this is mainly to attract tourists. But we have also occasions where a local municipality close to Reykjavik offers to take the medicine or the physician museum off the hands of the National Museum to fund an exhibition. They have the the certain general's house built in the 18th century. It's a very historic house. So they're going to put up an exhibition on the healthcare museum, or we would call it. They then realize that this is probably not a big tourist attraction. So they renegate on this agreement. They actually uh, return everything, and they want to put something else in the house, something more touristy, something more attractive. The National Museum says, no, you can't. So that it's a bit of a battle between the two. So we're seeing more cases where, where, where communities realize that, okay, this was a, a nice idea 10 years ago. It's not attracting any tourists. Let's throw this out. Let's put something different in. When I was here before, well, you mentioned that you were a member of Alphone. That's yeah. the Association for Living History, Farm, and Agricultural Museum. So we'll give them a shout out here because yeah. I love them. And that you you attended their most recent meeting, right? Yeah. Um, their annual meeting, which was at Genesee Country Village mm-hmm. in Rochester, New York. That's a long way to go for a conference. Um, how do museum professionals like you and, and your colleagues in Iceland develop your professional skills and find new ideas? Do you always have to travel outside of Iceland? Or is there a, some sort of community here as well? We have uh, an Icelandic equivalent called Thesos. Uh, they have an annual meeting and probably every five years we go abroad. So we meet annually. A museum will host, just like in Alfam, will host the conference. Of course, it's, it's not very big. I guess the attendance is about 50, 60 people at best. Depends where it is. It's a big opportunity for people who are working as sole directors to meet other people because I guess it gets pretty lonely for them being the only employee. Uh, so it's it's also a social gathering. We have our banquet, but also a chance to meet and discuss topics and they do lectures and things like that. Compared to Alfam, it's more of a... They always choose a topic for each one, which bothers me a bit because, you know, sometimes it's digital register of, of collection, which I... I have no clue and I have no real interest in. And all the conference evolves around this. And a lot of people... Are like, <laughs> so the, the good thing I like about Altham is you have many topics and you can choose the lecture you want to go and you can choose the things that really interest you. And I'm always trying to t- telling my colleague, we should do this Altham style. Uh, so this year's annual conference is in Siglufjörður, which is a town up on the north. They have probably one of the most... I would say one of the most fascinating museums probably in the world. It's a herring museum. Have you been to this museum? No, no. I've been to Siglafjörður, but not, to the herring, oh. not the herring museum. It's How did I miss it? It's a fantastic museum. And, and I, to go to Siglafjörður and not visit the herring museum, it's blasphemy. The, the way I got into Alfam, so my colleague calls me on the phone and says, a person wants me to do a lecture in Estonia, would you like to do it? So I fly over and I do this 
talk, 15 minutes. And I meet a couple of people, Deborah Reed, Judy Sheridan, if you're, if you're Alpha, you know these people, of course. And, and they're talking about this uh, North American Association. There's a meeting in, in Calgary later that year, and they suggest maybe I should apply for the International Fellowship. And I think that's fantastic. I've never been to Canada. I'd like to go to Canada. So I apply. Uh, they Fortunately, they give me the fellowship, and I, I fly over and, and do the conference. And I kind of fell in love with the whole thing. I uh, really met a lot of nice people. and I, So next year was Colonial Williamsburg, and I thought, Great. I'll do one more, one more. <laughs> I have to see Colonial Williamsburg. So I go down there to the, to the second conference. It's a huge conference, of course. And the next year it's Louisiana. And I'm like, oh, I have to do one more, one more. So I have to go to Louisiana. And this year it's Genesee. Again, one more, one more. Next year is Oklahoma. So yes, one more, one more. <laughs> so I, this is going to be my fifth. If I, if I manage to reach Oklahoma, it'll be my fifth. Well, that's a good track record coming from abroad. There, there can't be that many international museum people this year, at the conference. This year, I haven't been to Alpha myself. No, I think I was the only one probably this year. Uh, they always have the International Fellowship. So I'm, they're usually two. Or, well, uh, the few from Britain. Do they count? No, not, <laughs> not. That's nice. I guess it won't be the same for me. Americans abroad aren't nearly as exciting as Icelanders no, in, no, in Oklahoma. I'm going to struggle to figure out how to like boil this content down. Maybe it'll be a longer podcast than I thought. Two days. Um, <laughs> yeah, but just like, well, yeah. So three, four episodes. You can be like, you'll just be the whole season. In real time. The whole season will just be yeah. sick talking yeah. about the museum. Yeah. My final question then is, what museum should I visit next? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, I think Skoar is a fascinating museum because they have... Um, they're a museum that's actually making money. Oh. Most municipality museums are being funded by the community without any return. As far as I believe, Skoar is just, they're just a, like a business, uh, mainly because they have over 70,000 visitors as opposed to, well, we have 40,000. We're in Reykjavik and they're about three hours from here. But the thing is, they're on the route to the Glacier Lagoon, which is one of the big attractions that we're so they enjoy the fact that they buy the ring road, people stop there, and it's a very fascinating museum. It's a museum that maybe has stuck in time, but it has its little curiosities. Unfortunately, the, the director has now retired. Uh, he's now 95. He, he was a big attraction because he was still standing there, greeting everyone that came through, still doing the tours himself, and obviously a huge wealth of information, having founded it in the 1940s. You go to the, we go to the penis museum together and, okay. and see how that works, I guess. It's actually yeah. really fun. Yeah. We do a, <laughs> we a, do a podcast, podcast yeah. of visiting the museum. Yes, of our, of our um, experience of the, of the Palazzo del Museum. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening and following along as I travel around Iceland talking to the people behind this country's amazing museums. Stay tuned for more episodes. You can find out about new episodes by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts fix. And following me on Twitter at Hannah underscore RFH. You can also visit my website, hethman.com. That's H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com. If you post about the podcast on social media, 
please use the hashtag Museums in Strange Places. And now it's time to acknowledge the beautiful people who helped make this podcast a reality. The music for this episode was created by So-and-So. You can find more from him on SoundCloud. Rachel Salmon designed the podcast art. The folks behind the Museum People podcast, Dan Yeager and Mariaki Van Dam, generously shared their podcasting wisdom in an AASLH technical leaflet, and that was invaluable. My husband and my mom provided constant encouragement when I wanted to give up, and you actually listened to the podcast all the way to the end. That's pretty cool. So thanks to you.